I love you. <laughs> Take advantage of that. Yes, Pastor D has been giving me that, but I see he took it back, but we'll share it. That's all right. It's just, I just want you to know that thank you so much for being here. And I also want to say thank you for everybody who's tuning um, in on live stream as well. Um, last week we had 350 to 400 views on live stream. So um, it's, it's, uh, I just want to say welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for being a part of this body and for being a part of this church. Uh, we've been going through the book of First John, and we're going to do it for 13 weeks. I've found a way to expand it to 14 weeks. I have a plan. So uh, we're going to look at 14 weeks. Uh, the day after Christmas or two days after Christmas, we'll talk about First John as well. So we won't be done quite um, then. But what is First John about? When John wrote a book, he explained to us the reason why he wrote it. When he wrote the book of John, he says in chapter 20, I wrote this so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So when you look at the book of John, everything about it is written for the purpose that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John told us when he wrote the book. In the book of 1 John, he told us as well. He says, I write this so that you know that you have eternal life, which means so that you know that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So as we're working through that, uh, we're looking at the concepts that John is putting in his book, and it's all through every verse, practically, through every verse, and um, uh, asking us the question, I have received Christ as my Savior. What has it done to me? What is it doing? What has happened when I received Jesus Christ as my Savior? And that is what's taking place uh, through this, this book. So number one, believers test the spirits by acknowledging Jesus. Whenever we look at religions, uh, there's many religions in the world. In fact, there's 4,200 different religions that are in the world. And when you look at all the, the different religions, these religions were created to answer the big questions in life. Big questions on how we got here, what is our purpose, and where are we going to go after we die. So religions are developed in, in that regards to figure out, answer those large questions. Now, if Christianity gets an argument from the world or from many people, they say, well, Christianity is so narrow-minded. And what does it mean by narrow-minded? It means that Jesus is the only way. And I will proclaim it to the top of my lungs that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. And said, well, you know, that is very narrow-minded. But when you build these religious constructs, you have to choose one or the other no matter what is presented to you. There is no God. That's pretty narrow-minded. You have to choose that one. There is one God. Well, that's narrow-minded as well. You need to, is, it, is it that one? I mean, it's got to be one or the other. There are multiple gods. Well, if there's multiple gods, it takes the other two out. So that religious construct is very narrow-minded as well. All gods lead to the same God. That is not narrow-minded, but that is a leap of faith where you have now taken every single one of the religions and you put them into one single box and it is your theological construct to say all gods are the same God. So what it comes down to is that we're all narrow-minded. <laughs> every one of us are narrow-minded. And when we put together a religious construct or when people put together a religious construct or the Bible gives us a statement that Jesus is the only way then what's taken place is that there is only one way no matter what we put in place, period. So as there is only one way with 4,200 different religions, how do you decipher which is the way? How do you know which is the way? The passage that we're going to work on today 
explains us how to test the spirits. Very, very powerful passage because in this passage, he's going to explain us how to test the spirits in six verses, meaning that the words in this is given us all the tools to test the spirits, whether it's a spirit that is what he uses from the Antichrist, which means against Christ. That's what it means. It's not like the Antichrist. It just means against Christ or the ones that are for Christ. So let's read it and then we'll work through it. 1 John 4, 1 through 6. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus is not God is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and, and is now already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. 4,200 different religions, and we're not even going to talk about the different religions. Sorry. (laughs) We're going to get more specific than even the different religions. Because there's 33,000 denominations. (laughs) And you go, oh my goodness. You look at all these denominations... What is right? And a lot of the denominations is even working off the Bible. And it's like, well, what is right? Is it an okay denomination? Is it not okay denomination? What is going on here? Because I want, personally, I want nothing but truth. I want nothing but to know exactly what this word says and interpret it correctly for the right answer. That's, that's, that's what I want. And as we're looking at this, I'm not saying that religions are these denominations are antichrist, but what the tools that John has given us in this passage is to decipher every single conversation to see if it's from God or not. Every single church to see if, if they're on the right track or not. In fact, if I give you this passage and preach this passage, you could look at me and say, is Jefferson Baptist on the right track? <laughs> he just gives us two things, just two things to say if you're on the right track. And again, I'm going to preach it two weeks. I'm sorry, I'm preaching it one week, and I'm going to preach the same passage next week. Two things. Here's the one thing I'm going to preach this week. This is the thing to know if you're on the right track or not. Acknowledging that in Jesus, God came into the world. That's the first thing that this this verse says. If you want to test the spirits, you need to acknowledge that in Jesus, God came into the world, and you see it underlined on verse 2 and verse 3 as it's building up, and then gives it to us, and then again rolls it under, and then gives us another one at the end, and we'll talk about the other one at the end next week. 1 John 4, 2 says, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. A couple words I want to point out. One of the words I want to point out is come in the flesh. Come. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say born. 
Now, was Jesus born in the flesh? We're getting ready to celebrate Christmas. Absolutely, Jesus was born in the flesh. But this is a tight six verses where John is going to give you a packed punch loaded with every single word, and he does not say born in the flesh. He says come in the flesh. What does he insinuate in here? If you come, he's insinuating that he was somewhere else before he arrived. If he says come, he was somewhere else before he arrived. He is making a statement in one word that Jesus is God. Somewhere else, and then he arrived. And then he uses the word flesh. Jesus was somewhere else, and then he came into the flesh. Isn't that an interesting word to use when you're starting to develop, understand all what's the word I'm looking for? Discerning all the spirits. You're trying to discern all the spirits, and John says, Jesus came in the flesh. He doesn't even point to a spirit. He points to God came in the flesh. If you want to understand what's going on in the spirit world, the first thing to understand is your base is that God came in the flesh. It happened 2,000 years ago, and it was a historical event. That's what John is telling us. This is the base of understanding if we're going to test the spirits or not. We're going to know. So we have the word come, and we have the word flesh, and then we have the word acknowledge. It does not say believe. It says acknowledge. And the reason why it says acknowledge is because we're testing the spirits. So in all of our conversations, we're trying to test the spirits to see, is this right or is this not right? And you can go into a church, and what do you happen? You have to listen. Is somebody acknowledging that Jesus Christ came in the flesh? Acknowledge means confess that is speaking out to declare, to profess. So to understand what spirit is correct, you need to look and observe. Is Jesus Christ being spoken, talked about, proclaimed, or is something else on top of it what's taking place? Is Jesus in a corner with something else driving, with something else pushing, with something else sending? So here's the, the test on how to test the spirits. This is how to get the foundation. But now let's test the spirits. And this is, um, I'll just tell you that I use this verse to test the spirits. And I use the, the one phrase that Jesus came into the flesh to test all the spirits. You know, as a, as a church person, I'm supposed to understand the books that are written, understand what comes in to understand if it's the right doctrine or not. These are the areas of how I test the spirit using that phrase. Number three. Look to see if Jesus is getting all the airtime. When we um, open up the Bible and we read the Bible, we look at it through a lens. And the lens comes out in our conversation. And what I mean by that is that when we read the Bible, we can often think of, okay, this is the lens that I look through the Bible. I look through a behavior lens. In other words, the Bible is all about behavior. I need to do this, I need to make sure this is done, I need, to, I need to embrace the Ten Commandments, I need to obey the Ten Commandments, I need to embrace what Jesus did, I need to live exactly like how Jesus did. It's, it's, it's about behavior. Other people will look at it through the lens of ministry. Everything is entirely about ministry, just completely and entirely about ministry. Other people look at it through signs and wonders. It's all about miracles. When you read the Bible, it's everything just points to miracles. And when we look at it through that lens, what comes up in our conversation when we talk about the Bible, it's, it's all about miracles. It's all about signs and wonders. It's all about, it's, a, it's about healing. Other people will look at it through the lens of, of prophecy. 
And the entire Bible is all about prophecy. You can tell when somebody is looking at it through that lens because every time you have a spiritual conversation, it migrates back to what? Migrates back to prophecy because all of us are looking through a lens when we look through the Scripture. What sort of lens should we look at? We should look at the lens that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh and every single page is saying it. Everything is pushing towards it. Everything is, is driven towards it. And churches can be defined when they look at the Bible as well because there's a lot of different churches out there, signs and wonders churches, ministry churches, behavior churches, um, how to be a better you church, um, the prophecy church, the healing church, and there's even political churches out there. What it is is just looking through the lens of Scripture and say, this is the lens that I look through, but it must be Christ when we look through the lens. When Jesus came to earth, he did the most radical thing you can possibly ever do. And what he did, and this is why he was even crucified, is that what he did is he came and he claimed God. He claimed God. And the next thing he did is he claimed the Old Testament and said, the entire Old Testament is written about me. He's putting it all completely and entirely on him. Radical, radical teaching. John 5 says, if you believe Moses, this is Jesus speaking, you would believe in me, for Moses wrote about me. Everybody just loves the Old Testament. You know, Pharisees, everybody's taking the Old Testament. This is the words of God from the Old Testament. We see it, the parting of the Red Sea. We th- see it through Elijah. We see it through the prophets. But when Jesus came, he said a powerful, powerful statement. All that stuff that Moses wrote, it's all about me. It says it again in Luke 24. He said to them, this is what I told you when, while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me. Where was it written? In the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. He's even getting more specific. See how radical he's getting? And then he opened up their minds so they could understand the Old Testament. That's what the scriptures are. He just claimed the entire Old Testament to say it was what? Written about him. And when the church started in the book of Acts, what took place? What scripture were they using? They're using the Old Testament. And they're using the message that drove the Old Testament. Jesus died. Jesus rose. He's the Christ, meaning he's the chosen one that has come to save souls. And for 300 years, they didn't even have a Bible. All they had is letters that were walking around from Paul and from the apostles that that talked about Jesus and this one message that he has came into the world to save sinners. It's all written about him. Revelation 1.8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the one almighty, he has taken the ultimate position. Alec Mortar says, the Old Testament is Jesus predicted, the gospel is Jesus revealed, Acts is Jesus preached, the the epistles are Jesus explained, and Revelation is Jesus expected. It's all centered around Jesus. That's why John, when he wrote these six verses to say, if you're going to test the Spirit, he's going to point you where? Jesus has come in the flesh. Number four, look to see if Jesus is getting all the glory. There's a tragic accident that happened quite a few years ago where a young person died on a farm. And as this um, person passed away, the uh, family is, of course, 
emotionally distraught, and we had somebody from the church that was working with them, trying to help them go through this, um, this horrific grieving process. Now, this person that was working from our church with them and helping them would be in my office consistently saying, you know, how, what can I give them? What, what's the encouragement I can do? And uh, every one of these conversations was not the easiest conversation because it was a tragic event. But this individual came in my office one particular afternoon, and he was excited, beaming from ear to ear. He says, you will not believe what just happened. A prophet knocked on the door of that farm, of that house. And he says, I have been given a word from God to give to you. If you invite me in, I will give you the specific word that is from God. And this person ended up telling me the story of what this prophet said. He said that this prophet said that there's going to be a kingdom that's going to build be built on your farm. And of course, they talked about the tragic incident of the son, and the prophet already knew the tragic incident about the son as they were working together to start something, God's kingdom being built here on that farm. So as this story was given to me, this person asked me, he goes, what do you think? Do you think it's true? The family completely is convinced, and so am I. And I said, it's all a bunch of bunk. And he goes, well, how do you know that? What do you, what do you think? How do you, how do you figure that out? How can you just take a, a prophet and say it's, it's wrong if somebody does that? He says, well, you told me the story and it took you about 10 minutes. And in that story, two people were glorified and none of them were Jesus. None of them were Jesus. You can listen to the stories and every story that is given in regards to prophecy, is given in regards to an enlightenment, is given in regards to a revelation, is going to point to Jesus. Two people were glorified. Neither was Jesus. I wouldn't believe it. In 10 minutes, you better be saying Jesus for something's taking place. Why? Because everything is pointing to him as he has embraced the Old Testament and he is in the New Testament and he's sending forth into the future. It's all about Jesus. Philippians 2.8 says this, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow to those who are in heaven and to those who are on earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He has taken the position as King of kings and Lord of lords. Who am I? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. What kind of things do I have to offer you? I have absolutely nothing to offer you except a message that is just said in Philippians 2, 8 through 11. There's a king of kings and there's a lord of lords. His name is Jesus Christ and I'm going to hand him to you because that's the only thing I have to offer you, nothing else. In this verse you see obedient, pointed to death. God exalted him name above every name, every knee will bow in heaven on earth, and every tongue will be confessed. My name is worth a hill of beans, and God's name saves. Therefore, if it is my name that is proclaimed in anything that I do, nothing happens. If it's Jesus' name that is proclaimed in anything I do up here, everything is going to happen. And history even proves it, because you see every single revival that has ever taken place, what comes to the surface? The Word of God and the gospel be in the center of it. Every revival has taken place. The word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ come to the center. The world does not need to see us, they need to see what? Him, and who is fighting for God's glory. We are actually fighting for God's glory. 
I want glory due unto me. And what does it do? It takes it away from him. Number five, look to see if Jesus is receiving the honor. Whenever we talk about spirit or spiritual world, there's the miraculous that is out there. And the miraculous comes from miracles. And miracles is one thing that is very, um, very um, huge, we'll put it that way. And the Bible has miracles in it. And I just want to explain to you what a miracle is. And then as I talk about a miracle, I'll explain to you a little bit of, of my personal um, understanding of uh, what the Bible says about miracle. But what is a miracle? A miracle is when the law of nature is annihilated by divine intervention. A miracle is when the law of nature, a mathematical formula, is annihilated by a divine intervention. To see what happens when God created the world, every single mathematical formula that scientists are presented was created by the hand of God. And the scientists are discovering the formulas. And when I look at all these formulas, I tell you, my mind just starts to pop. But what do I do? I'm like, boy, God has everything under control. He is so smart because he spoke things into being. But as he spoke things into being, mathematical formulas were developed inside of nature. And he has laws that are inside of nature. And that is what has taken place. But a miracle is where he takes the laws of nature and you just get rid of them. Walking on water. If you do the laws of nature, you can't walk on water. I'm sorry. All the laws of nature says you cannot walk on water. It is going to take a divine intervention, the hand of God, to say, I am going to break my laws of nature for the purpose of walking on water. Five loaves and two fish. Five loaves and two fish do not equal 5,000 servings with 12 baskets left over. I mean, I know math. Not very good at all. But I know that that's wrong. It takes a divine intervention to break the laws of nature. A child, uh, uh, um, uh, a child being born. As a child is being born, there is a statement that comes out. It is a miracle when the child is being born. Is it a miracle? It's not a miracle. <laughs> as amazing as it is, God put the laws of nature in place, and as the laws of nature is in place, children are born, and we look at it, and it is absolutely fascinating. But a divine intervention has not intruded the laws of nature and made it happen. It, it just hasn't. And if we do say that, what we do is we, we water mir miracles down, because miracles come with an extreme amount of power. And the reason why they come extreme amount of power is because whoever performs them, whoever gets close to them, is going to be honored, period, is going to be honored, is going to be seen, is going to be noticed, is going to be recognized. This is what I believe about miracles. I believe there's less miracles in the Bible than you think there is, and I believe that there's more miracles taking place than you can possibly imagine. What I mean by less miracles in the Bible than you think there is. There's, there's a Psalms. Psalm 77 says this, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles long ago. Asaph was the one who wrote this psalm. He was a, um, a worship leader in the first temple that David appointed. So he is preaching to a church, and he's building these songs, and even writing these songs for a church. And as these people walk in, what does he say? Oh, remember all the miracles that Moses did. <laughs> remember when the sea was parted. Why would he point to those miracles? Probably because there's not a lot that's happening right now. 
And since there was not a lot to happen, people, or at least they weren't seeing them, and if they're not seeing them, what did he do? He pointed to the power of God that happened long ago. But I also believe that there's more miracles that could take place than you could possibly even imagine. But the miracles are not being connected to one human being. I'm just going to say that. This is just my, my belief and my interpretation of Scripture. is not connected to my, uh, one human being. The reason why it's not connected to one human being, in other words, I'm a pastor that can perform them, the reason why it is not is because I would receive glory in the best way. I'd receive honor in the best way. In fact, I want to do a miracle. <laughs> because if I want to do a miracle, what's going to take place? There will be something that will come to me. Because I'm a man accredited to by God to be able to do it, and you're not, and you show up for that purpose. Acts 2, 22, here's a sermon that changed the world. Peter saying, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man, what? Accredited by God to you by what? Miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you all know. A man gets honor. Jesus got ultimate honor for doing all the miracles. In fact, if you look at the Bible, you can see congestions of miracles. And, and one of the congestions of miracles is where? Is in, is in Moses. Moses does a lot of miracles take place. All the plagues, the parting of the sea, and the list goes on in the miracles that happen. The other area, the connection of the Bible, is in Elijah. Story of Elijah, we have another aggressive amount of miracles that are happening. And then the, the third one is in Jesus. And then you just have everything, shout, whatever he says is just coming into being. And when these things are coming into being, it is a lot that's happening. Now, there is some miracles that take place by the apostles, but who are the apostles? The apostles are the ones that seen Jesus. He's, they're validating the ministry of Jesus by performing signs and wonders. I can show the verses there that I do not have. But what's taking place is these miracles are pointing to, to people doing them. And what takes place on Mount Transfiguration? Three people show up in front of the disciples. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, and an audible voice is spoken from God. This is my son who I am well pleased. I completely believe that there's more miracles taking place than you can possibly imagine, but for a human to appoint them, ah, testing the spirits, you struggle, I struggle. Lazarus says this, then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed that you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Lazarus was raised for the purpose that people would believe that Jesus was sent by who? God. And boy, were those miracles aggressive. Paul says this, remember his handkerchief was healing the sick, but this is what he says. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. He pointed right back to what? What John says in regards to testing the Spirit. What John said in regards to testing the Spirit. There is going to be no distraction, and you're going to give no distraction to who Jesus is, period. No matter what you do, there should be no distraction of what Christ has done 2,000 years ago because if people are distracted from that, what's going to take place? The message of salvation will not be given. Number six, look to see if Jesus is receiving the credit. 
I ask myself the question when I look at the Word of God, and I, I see myself when I, I look at the Word of God, and, and when I see myself, um, this is what I see. I see that I'm, by nature, an object of wrath. And the only way that I have received anything or can be anybody is only by the grace of God. Ephesians 2 says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That's me, that is you, that is every single human being. But something happened. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we are dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so you can't say you even did a good job. All credit, God, we go, go into him. How do we test the spirits? We can just ask a simple question. In a conversation, or if you walk into the church, is all credit going to God? Because he's taking all the credit. <laughs> he's taking all the credit in the word. Is it going to Christ? Number seven, look to see if Christ has the power. As a pastor, I receive many books and receive many even statements to say, okay, is this right or is this not right? And, uh, and I have to figure it out. And again, what I do is I use you know, this passage to, to figure it out. And I put, Christ has come in the flesh to figure it out, and then I read it in, re- in that regards. So I will, I will test the book. I will test, you know, just personally test it. So I'm just um, looking at a book, and this is um, Strengthen Yourself in the Lord. This is from, from Bill Johnson. And um, it's, it's a, a church in California that um, has had many church plants and uh, is moving very aggressively. And this book was handed to me, and it was asked, you know, is this an all right book? Is this a good book? Well, let's test the spirits together. Strengthen Yourself in the Lord. The title is How to Release the Hidden Power of God in Your Life. Um, I personally reacted to the title. And the reason why is because why is there a hidden power? The hidden, there's no hidden power. When John was saying that, what, you want to talk about the spirit world? Jesus came in the flesh and you can read about him in what? Your language, which is what? Human language. In other words, I understand God because our human walked on earth. It's not hidden. In fact, God does not want to hide it. God wants to portray it. God wants to preach, and it's all in Christ Jesus. So I just, I just reacted to that. I'm just, just going, through, going through the book. And then the titles of some of the chapters, you become what you behold. Personally, I can become Jesus if I behold him, if, if that is the case. I mean, that, that statement is, is an aggressive statement. Um, I do not become what, beho- what I behold. I am saved by the grace of God and he gets it all. I am saved by the grace of God and he gets it all. We are God's delegated authority. Authority means the power or the right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. I have no rights to give orders. I have no rights to make decisions, and I have no rights to enforce obedience. I have the purpose to give you the gospel. All authority 
is granted in there. He's not given me authority so I can run things. It all goes back to Jesus. He's the one that's carrying the authority. The importance of ministering to God, ministry is attend to the needs. I don't attend to the needs of God. I don't. I don't attend to the needs of God because God doesn't need me. He can get rid of me and things will just go as fast as can be. He just go wherever, however he wants. He does all the work. He has all the power. I'm not ministering to God. Increased favor secures your identity. My identity is secured to the blood of Christ because I am a sinner and I know that I can't get to heaven without that blood. And the second I think that I can get there with any other means to secure my eternal salvation, I'm a ruined man. It all goes back to what? That same comment, Jesus came in the flesh. Here's another statement. Whenever God speaks to us, his prophetic anointing is released. In what he says, the anointing does not just tell you what will be, it is creating what will be. That means I have the, been given, granted by God, prophetic power to fulfill prophecy. I haven't given anything. I've been given nothing but a gospel to hand to you, thereby we must hear it to be saved. The anointing is another statement. The anointing that is on Christ is the same Holy Spirit who has been given to every believer. He is the one who qualifies us as members of the royal priesthood or God and calls us to continue the ministry of Christ by demonstrating what God is like through the miraculous. God demonstrated to us what he is like through the blood of Jesus Christ and we understand it in human form. That is how Christ is demonstrating himself. That gospel gives us a revelation of what? Gives us a revelation of his heart. That gospel gives us a revelation of his heart. Not a revelation of his hand, not a revelation of his body, a revelation of his heart, and what does that cross say? God says, I love you, and that's what I need. That's what you need. You don't even need the miraculous. More miracles are taking place than you can possibly imagine. But do you know what? You don't need that because one day, I'm going to say, you don't need it. You can have it. But one day you're going to die. Meaning one day you're not going to get the miracle you want. One day you're not going to get the miracle that you want. But where's the focus? The focus is on that cross of Christ that saves the soul of man. So one day I will die, but I will be more alive that day than I've ever been in my entire life because I've been saved by the blood of Christ. Last statement, the Hebrew root word for testimony means do it again. Every record of what God has done in generations past is promised of what he will do again in our lives because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As you read in the previous chapter, the prophetic anointing does not just declare what God wants to to do, but also carries a creative power to bring that bring what is declared into being. The testimony releases this anointing. Testimony means what? A declaration of a fact. It does not mean do it again. It's a declaration of a fact that happened 2,000 years ago and it's that testimony that has saved my life and I'm not doing it again. It is what I have received. And when I received, I do believe that the Holy Spirit enters me, but what happens when the Holy Spirit enters me? It gives me the instructions of what the Holy Spirit does, and what does it do? Jesus says in John 14, it testifies everything that I've said. Points us right back to Jesus. Consistently points us right back to Jesus. Everything God has done does not give you the power to do it again. 
Second, or I'm going to give you this. Isaiah 14 says this, and this is, this is Lucifer who was cast out of heaven. He said, in his heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars. I will sit on the mountain of the assemblies in the recess of the north. I will ascend above the heights and the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. Lucifer is taking a position, and his position is five I wills. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. What's the gospel message? He did, he did, he did, he did, he did. Second Corinthians 12. But he said to me, my grace, this is Paul speaking, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then somebody is strong. Who? Again, pointing to Jesus. We all pull back and say we're nothing for the purpose of saying that he is something so the world may see him, not us. Number eight, number eight. The reason why God does not show himself for our eyes to see is because he wants us to have an understanding of what his heart looks like. His heart is revealed when he came in the flesh. Many, many statements are out there that if I could just see God, I would believe in him. If the sky would just open up, then I would believe him. If he answers this prayer, then I will believe in him. We put the terms before God, saying, I will believe in you if I can see you, touch you, hear you, audible voice. Something gives me, then I will believe in you. But what happens is that whatever it is that we hand out to God to say, if you give me this, I will believe in you, then this is what? The source of our salvation. Because if we see it once, we're going to want it what? Again. Christ does not want to reveal to us his being yet. He first wants to reveal his heart. And the only way you'll ever see his heart is if you travel back 2,000 years ago. The only way you'll ever see his heart is if you travel down 2,000 years ago. God, who lived the life that I could not live, and died the death that I should have died and rose again so I can be saved is a revelation of what is in God's heart. How he thinks, how he moves, his character, his beauty, and his care and concern about his lost people. 2,000 years ago, that is our spot that we get to look at and test all the spirits because that is the spot that has changed people's eternity. That is a spot that will send people to where they're going. And it will answer all the questions on where did we come from, what is our purpose, and where we're going. It's all anchored into that 2,000 years ago. God, we just thank you so much that we can understand you. God, you came in the flesh so we can understand you. We do not understand Spirits. We do not understand what we cannot see. We do not understand um, divine that is so large that we cannot even fathom or comprehend, but we understand human being. And we understand that you, God, came in the flesh for the purpose of revealing your Father. And the ultimate revelation is at the cross when you died for our sins. We thank you, God, for this message. And we just pray that throughout this world, that message will be proclaimed above all. In Christ's name, amen.